Well, hello again, Tony Payne here with another edition of The Painful Truth. Great to have you all here with me again this week. And it is you all this week. It's the whole list. It's a freebie kind of public edition of the podcast. So great to have you all listening. And our subject this week bounces off something that we talked about a few weeks ago. It was in one of the non-freebie editions, in one of the partner or subscriber editions, called Postcard from Australia. And I've actually made that available freely for everyone now, just so that you can go and check it out if you want to. But in that post a few weeks ago, I was talking about my recent trip to the US, and I particularly spoke about the musical culture, the singing culture that I encountered in the place that I went, and how this had given me pause to think about our own singing culture in the circles that I move in. Now, I suppose I should have expected this, and I kind of did, but quite a few of you got in touch after my comments and asked for more on this subject. You had questions and comments of your own, and there's certainly more to say on this whole question, and I'd like to devote uh, today's episode to pursuing those things, but I've been pondering what to say and what I could say in this brief space that is encouraging and constructive and non-ranty, shall we say, and generally sensitive to the fact that if there's one subject that otherwise united people will tend to disagree about, it's this one. It's music and singing. And so with those thoughts in mind, here are three ideas I have, three things I want to put before you that I hope will help us think further about singing and the nature of our singing and why we sing and how we should sing in church that I hope will be helpful and encouraging and stimulate some further discussion. So here's point number one, a reason to sing. Now, much of our discussion about church singing in recent decades, it seems to me, has revolved around the subjects of praise and worship. Those are the terms of the discussion. And it's almost a cliche now to insist that worship and praise are much bigger things than singing, much bigger categories than just singing. They're all of life responses to God, we might say. And also that singing is much more than praise and worship, that if we just call singing praise and worship, we haven't said enough because singing is also a form of mutual encouragement and admonition, as Paul says in Colossians as well. Anyway, these debates have gone on over the years and you're probably familiar with them and they're helpful in some ways and they've been frustrating in others and I'm not going to rehash all that here because it occurs to me that there's another prominent theological idea or category for talking about singing, and we hardly ever talk about it. We hardly ever discuss it. And perhaps this other category might help us think differently or more clearly about why we sing and how we sing together in church. It's very striking how often the Bible links singing with joy. I'm thinking of the famous opening of Psalm 95 as one very good example. Here it is in the Book of Common Prayer version that I've been using quite a lot recently in my own devotional times. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and show ourselves glad in him with psalms. Now, in the poetry of these verses, the Hebrew poetry with its parallelism, that parallels two halves of a verse to say something about each half, singing is paralleled very closely with joy and rejoicing. You'd gain the idea from these verses that singing is how we demonstrate and express our joy, our gladness, our thanksgiving, 
our delight in the Lord who is the rock of our salvation. And we could look through many other psalms that confirm precisely this kind of connection. Look at Psalm 5.1, for example, or Psalm 9.2, or Psalm 27.6, and I've got a whole lot of other references listed here that are too tedious to read out. Rejoicing and singing seem to go together, seem to express one another or relate to one another. Now, there aren't all that many references to singing in the New Testament, especially to singing in church. But one of the very few references we have is in the book of James, in chapter 5, where James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. The natural thing to do if you're joyful or cheerful is to sing. Now, it's not as if joy is the only mode of singing that exists in the world or even in the Bible. There are love songs and laments and ballads that tell the story. But if we do want to rejoice, and we are commanded to rejoice, don't forget, in many places, again and again, in all circumstances, then one of the most significant ways we can rejoice is to sing. When we sing, we show ourselves glad, as the psalm says. We employ our whole body and soul, not just to say that we're glad, but to demonstrate our joy and enact our joy and to rejoice. Joy, we might say, is an affection, a sense of delight and gladness and happiness in something that's really good. But rejoicing is an action. It's something we could be called upon to do. It's an action that springs from and expresses and, I think, grows that affection, that joy. Sometimes we feel very much like rejoicing. Like when the swans come from behind to defeat the magpies with a last-minute goal. And for me, the best part of a win by the Swannies is being there with 30,000 other fans and erupting into the song at the end. Cheer, cheer, the red and the white. It rings out throughout the stadium. And everybody is celebrating and rejoicing the victory by singing the team song. We're rejoicing because we're already pretty joyful. But sometimes we only start to feel the joy as we rejoice, perhaps as we stand together and sing a stirring song of joy with our brothers and sisters. And at other times, of course, we rejoice and we show ourselves glad in the Lord and in all his blessings, even though our hearts might be heavy with the troubles and hardships of life, because we know that we can and we should give thanks and rejoice in him in every circumstance. If we're looking for a way to describe what singing is for and what it's like, especially to describe the affective nature of singing as we gather in church, rejoicing is an excellent biblical candidate for it, it seems to me. Rejoicing is our heartfelt response to what the rock of our salvation has done for us. It's something that we actively do by singing heartily together, something that expresses our glad response to the gracious work of God. And if we're looking for ways to diagnose what might be lacking in our church life when the whole vibe of our meeting might be stiff or listless or flat, the simplest biblical diagnosis might simply be that we're not rejoicing as we could and as we should. That's a diagnosis I could get behind. In other words, the thing that is sometimes missing from church 
is not an experience of God's presence or an exalted state of consciousness that brings me closer to him or any of the other quasi-mystical foundations for the whole praise and worship industry, for that praise and worship experience that the charismatic movement has pioneered and exported to so many of our churches. What's missing, perhaps, is all-in, foot-stamping, fist-pumping joy. How could this kind of joy grow or increase? Well, that brings me to the second thing I want to say, the second point, which is that rejoicing is a spiritual response to God. Like all fruits of the Spirit, joy is a divine action in us. It's also a human response. It can only come by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit brings us new life. And yet we're called to keep in step with the Spirit and respond to what God is doing in our lives. We're commanded to rejoice. It's something that we do as God works in us by his Spirit, through his Word. We can't, therefore, artificially or magically create joy or manufacture joy, not real joy, not real spiritual joy. It's not something that you can create with a driving baseline or with a key change. But we can grow in joy and grow in our obedience to the command to rejoice. And we can grow in this in the way that we grow in all spiritual things. That is, by hearing God's word and responding to it, by preaching and teaching the gospel of God's grace in Jesus, by holding up Jesus Christ before people's eyes and praying that the wonders of who he is and what he has done for us will ignite love and peace and joy and all the other fruits of the Spirit in our hearts. We grow in joy by prayerfully teaching and reminding people about this particular subject, as the apostles often did, teaching and urging them to rejoice and to give thanks always because of who Christ is and who God is and what he has done for us and what our future is. And teaching people to sing together as an important means of doing just this. And we can grow in joy by the congregation exemplifying this, especially by the mature in the congregation exemplifying joy in their singing. And we grow in this spiritual grace too by creating contexts and opportunities and structures in our church life within which this singing for joy can be practiced and can flourish. Now the kind of steps I've just outlined there for how joy can grow as a spiritual aspect of maturity as a Christian is really just a description of how we grow as Christians generally. We grow by the word of God preached and taught and exemplified as the spirit brings that word to life in our hearts, as we pray for God to work in people's hearts and change them, and as we practice it and do it as a congregation together. Now, this last point brings us to the practicalities, to how this thinking about singing as rejoicing might actually change what we do when we sing in our churches. And there's a lot to be said here. And this is the third main thing I want to speak about. But of all the things I've talked about in this episode, this is the one that's the most contextual, I suppose you could say, that varies the most from place to place. The one that's most subject to genuine differences of opinion and practice and wisdom. And therefore, probably the aspect of this episode that is most likely to get up your nose, dear listener. So with those caveats, let me proceed. The third thing I want to say is that we don't want to crowd out rejoicing with too much sound. 
Rejoicing in song is, to say the obvious, verbal. It's speech. It's joyful speech, musical speech, but it's speech all the same. It expresses in words how glad we are, and it recounts in words what we're so glad about. It communicates to God how much joy we have in him and in his works, and it communicates the same thing to each other. And this is why our singing, our rejoicing in song, is at the same time an act of joy, a responsive act of joy, as well as a declaration of all the ways that God is great and how much we have to rejoice in, which is very much what praise is. And it's also an exercise in mutual speech and mutual teaching and encouragement and admonition. The usual conclusion we draw from all this is that our songs must have good words. And this is true, certainly true. But there are three other equally important conclusions also that follow from this. And the first one is that the words of our songs must be heard. They must be heard on each other's lips. The predominant sound we should hear is the sound of God's people rejoicing. That is, the sound of joyful voices, of God's people singing out their joy in all that God is and all that he's done, and teaching each other as we do that. And this is where I fear that the rise of the worship band, if I can call it that, has done us no favours. And I speak as someone who's enjoyed playing in such bands for many years. I'm not quite sure how we've got to the place where we're currently at, but it's now pretty standard in the churches that I know of and are part of my circles. Pretty standard for a congregation of, say, 150 or 200 to be led by a worship band or a music team that consists of keyboards, drums, bass, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, and three singers, all of which is amplified and run through the sound desk. This seems to me vastly more than is necessary to accompany the singing of a group of that size. In fact, the effect of the sheer scale and volume of this sort of band is that the roles of accompaniment are reversed. The dominant sound in the room is the sound of the band, with the congregation accompanying them, singing along with them. Kind of like the faint echo you hear in a live rock concert, where you can sort of just hear the crowd singing along in the chorus. Now, is this enjoyable and great fun to listen to and to play in as a band, and also just to sing along with? Well, if it's done well, yes, it's great fun, it's enjoyable. But is it the sound of a congregation of God's people rejoicing? Well, I don't think so, because the congregation can't be heard. I can hear a few voices nearby, perhaps, especially if they're good singers. But I can't hear and be stirred by the wonderful sound of all God's people shouting for joy. The high-volume band that dominates the room makes the sound of the voices secondary. If what we're saying about joy is correct, it seems to me that we need to create a singing culture that reverses this, in which the accompaniment is just that, a secondary supportive sound that exists to enable the singing and nothing more. We need a song leader, and perhaps just one song leader, who shows us when to come in and exemplifies what we're all doing together, singing with joy, 
but whose voice isn't dominant in the room and ringing out over the PA. In fact, apart from perhaps leading us into the first words of each verse, I don't really see why the song leader's voice, or song leader's plural, voices, should be amplified at all. The voices we want to hear are each other's voices. Ah, but you say, the reason we need to hear the song leaders more loudly and clearly and amplified is so that we can follow the tune. Well, that leads to my second point under this heading. We need songs that big groups of people can sing easily together. This is a genre issue, it seems to me. Many of the songs that our bands play are remarkably similar in genre to the songs that popular bands generally play in our culture, and I guess that's not surprising. These are songs that are designed more for performance, however, and for listening than for group singing, because for better or for worse, that's our culture. Modern Western culture doesn't sing. We listen to music. We don't gather around the piano and sing, or at least not anymore. But this means that the songs we instinctively write and play in our worship bands are often poorly adapted for singing in unison. And so we need drums to establish the rhythm and hold the whole thing together. And we need amplified singers because otherwise we can't follow the complex syncopated tune. This all seems backwards. We've created a musical culture built on the performative genre of popular bands, rock bands, And then we feel that we need rock bands in church in order for our church musical culture to work. I strongly suspect we need to do something very countercultural at this point. We need to write songs and sing songs as people who love to sing together with other people in large groups. And this may mean refining and developing our own kind of genre, the genre of contemporary community singing, because... Community singing is just not something we do very much these days in Western culture. The third and final point under this heading is simply that all of this will take time. Building a culture of joyful singing dominated by voices will take patience because it is very likely a shift from what we're currently doing, and any shift takes patience. We'll need to teach and preach and pray about this. We'll need to model it and practice it. We'll need to create a kind of audio space for it to happen in, and in many cases, that will mean drastically reducing the scale and volume of the accompaniment. And we'll need to prioritise songs that a large group of people can latch onto easily and sing heartily and joyfully together. Now, in this third point and in these last few sections, I may have started to stray a little towards the ranty zone, and please forgive me if that's the case. And, as I know you will, please send in your own thoughts and experiences about all this, about creating this kind of authentic, joyful culture of singing, of singing the word of God to one another and to our Lord, in joy at all he's done for us. Now, there's a great deal more to say, of course, on all of this, but there's one point that didn't quite fit in into any of the categories or points that I was wanting to make, but I think is sort of important. As I visit different churches, and I do that quite a lot, I'm struck by how the architecture of the room and the space communicates what we really think we're doing. It communicates our culture and expresses our underlying assumptions. 
our reformed forefathers, of course, knew this and deliberately designed, or in some cases redesigned, buildings and spaces that reflected a word-centred Reformation evangelical faith as opposed to the architecture of medieval Roman Catholicism and all that it stood for. I sometimes think that if we were wanting to communicate to the congregation and to someone visiting, that they were attending a kind of rock concert as listeners and consumers, we would design our church spaces to be kind of a lot like the churches I often encounter. None of this, I think, is intentional or all that thought through, but the effect is quite powerful. You walk into the room and everything is centred around a stage at the front, a raised stage, which is covered in musical instruments, amplifiers, drum kits, leads, mic stands, all the paraphernalia of a rock band performance. The stage might be lit with banks of spotlights, some of them coloured. There might be video screens to further convey all that's happening. There also may be a lectern on the stage, but it's often unobtrusive. Sometimes the house lights are dimmed during the songs. As an architectural statement, a statement about what we're doing, there's something very unevangelical about this, it seems to me. Almost like we're trying to create the equivalent of a medieval cathedral in which all the colour and movement and theatre happens up the front in the special zone, where the mediators of God's presence do their thing. Now, I'm sure this is not what any of us believe, but it's the kind of space and set of assumptions that come through in the way we've set up our buildings and how we operate them, which seems strange to me. If we were designing a space in which the scriptural word of Jesus was at the centre and we were gathered around that word to hear him and to respond to him and to each other, including rejoicing together in song, what kind of building or space would that look like? Well, that's an interesting question, which I'll leave with you to reflect. Thank you for bearing with me in today's episode of The Painful Truth. I hope all that was stimulating and gave you reason to reflect and think further about the musical and singing culture of our churches. I'm not pretending that any of this is easy to solve quickly or to do easily. But it does seem to me that it's time for us to pause and think where we've come to in our singing culture and ask whether it reflects what the Bible says our singing is for and what it's about. Well, once again, thanks for being here on The Painful Truth. It's been great to talk about this subject with you. And if you've got some thoughts and reflections and you want to interact about this, and I'm sure many of you will, then get in touch by email. Just email me at tonyjpain at me.com. You can also go across to the website, to the text version of this episode, that's at thepainfultruth.online, and you can leave a comment there. Well, I look forward to hearing what you have to say, and thanks once again for being here. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.